Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year! That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time-boxing, single-tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Focusing on the things that we do well and using some of these things like you just described will help, but it doesn't eliminate the problem. And that's where we have to really put some work into acceptance, self-acceptance, and going with our ADHD instead of pushing it away and identifying as something's wrong with me, something's wrong with me. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Hello there! You know, I promised I had some fantastic guests lined up for you, and today's guest definitely fits the bill. But before we begin, I would like to share with you this review from a listener named Carrie on the Apple Podcast platform in South Africa. It's entitled, Thank You! I've just been diagnosed at the age of 38. My son was diagnosed with an attentive ADHD first, just a few weeks ago, and I started seeing so many similarities, but never in a million years did I ever consider it was ADHD. I'd been diagnosed with depression and anxiety in the past, but this is all making so much sense now. It's overwhelming, and your podcast and guests have me nodding along constantly. It's so helpful to be able to make sense of it, and it's actually providing a great deal of comfort and calm when I'm overwhelmed and having a moment. Thank you for all this valuable insight. Carrie from Cape Town. Well, thank you, Carrie from Cape Town. I'm so thrilled for your son that he has such an amazing mother who is going to help him grow up understanding and appreciating his brain and hopefully never thinking of himself as broken or stupid or lazy. The more we can understand ourselves and help our kids and change the worldview of neurodivergence, the better off we will all be. 
And I'm so glad you found this podcast, and I'm really grateful for the time you took out of your day to write that review. Your feedback makes me so happy. It really means the world. And now here is the part where I ask the rest of you that if you've been a listener of this podcast and you found it at all helpful and you've been meaning to leave a review, you just haven't gotten around to it, this is your reminder to head to Apple Podcasts or Audible, and you can now leave feedback on individual episodes on Spotify. And if writing a review feels like too much, and I get it, you can also just quickly hit the five stars. In fact, why don't you just pause right now and do it? I promise we'll wait for you. Okay, here we are at episode 162, in which I interview Terry Matlin. Terry Matlin is a psychotherapist, author, consultant, coach, and an internationally recognized expert on ADHD in women. She wrote the award-winning book, The Queen of Distraction, as well as the book Survival Tips for Women with ADHD. She runs addconsults.com, an international online resource serving women with ADHD, where she offers one-on-one ADHD consultations. She also runs queensofdistraction.com, an online coaching program for women with ADHD. And she created getadhdhelp.com, an online ADHD directory. With over 25 years of experience helping women with ADHD, Terry is a much sought-after presenter at conferences and webinars and has authored hundreds of articles. As is typical in my interviews, I had lots of questions for Terry, and I pick her brain about all sorts of things, including emotional intensity and ADHD, especially when it comes to the anxiety around what's currently happening in the world. We also talk about sensory sensitivities, self-regulation and self-care as women and mothers. And I asked Terry what she thinks about the recent increase in ADHD diagnoses. It was a real pleasure to be able to chat with such an expert. Terry has such curiosity and generosity and energy. She really is the queen of distraction. So here is my interview with Terry. All right, I am honored today to have as my guest Terry Batlin. Thank you so much for joining me, Terry. Thank you for having me. You're doing a terrific job, and I'm so excited to be part of it. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. I was so excited when you reached out. I, I mean, this is really, you've been on the top of my bucket list. So uh, I'm curious, did you, how did you hear about the podcast? You know, I have ADHD, Katie. <laughs> so I can't remember where, I can't remember where I started hearing your podcast. I, I recognized your name from you know your work in the past but I wasn't familiar with the podcast so I heard somebody might have been it might have been Sari Solden's episode and then I jumped on your website and thought wow you got some great guests and I'd love to be a part of that uh I wondered if she had mentioned it because I had 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 a conversation with her recently um it was shortly after that conversation that you reached out and I know you guys are good friends so I was just curious anyway so what I would love to hear from you first, if you, I'm sure you've shared this story many times, but if you'll indulge me for the sake of my own listeners, I would love to hear kind of about your own ADHD diagnosis in terms of how old you were, when it happened, and what were the things that were happening in your life that made it click for you that you thought, okay, I should really look into this. Well, like many women with ADHD, I was a late diagnosed woman with ADHD. I, uh, was always kind of scattered, disorganized. I procrastinated, but I had no idea what that was about. And in my day, it was unheard of. It was unknown that adults could have ADHD. But the story is my daughter, I have two daughters who are now young adults. My youngest 
had a very significant illness. She had an encephalopathy, which means a brain um, issue, a brain infection after a vaccine reaction. And she was extremely ill, and we didn't know if she would survive. So that was, no, that was really frightening. But she didn't come through it with uh, 100% of her abilities. They, they didn't all return. So one of the things that um, was very problematic was severe ADHD, severe. And it was to the point where I had to have another adult in the house with me. She was a toddler. I had to have another adult. Once she relearned how to walk and all those things, she didn't walk. She ran. She climbed. She got into things. Severe ADHD. And in my training, I'm a clinical social worker. In my training many years ago, nobody talked about ADHD, even in children. Um, So this was something brand new for me to try and figure out how do I help my daughter? How do I you know, prevent her from doing all these things that were extremely dangerous? So I started reading. Now, back in the day, this was in the late 1980s. I think it was the late, yeah, it was in the late 80s when she got sick. There was very little, very little out there on, on uh, books to read, articles, and we really didn't have the internet going yet. It's so odd. I, I found one book on adults with ADHD. It was a clinical book by, I think, Dr. Lynn Weiss. And I started reading that. I don't know why. I just, I mean, I had no no sense at the time that I might be having you know, some problems with this. But I was looking for help for her. So I read this book and then I had this aha moment. Like, oh my gosh, this sounds like people I know in my family. Not my kids so much, of course, yeah, but these are adults. And then I had this huge aha moment. But anyhow, I did find a book on how to help kids with uh, ADHD. It didn't help me too much because the severity of her ADHD. But I was very curious about the adult thing. There was just so little, you know, there was so little. But there was so much, there was so much in that book that piqued my interest that I reached out to a psychologist who happened to be local to me, uh, one of the few clinicians who understood and treated and evaluated adults with ADHD. So by that time, I was in my early 40s. I think I was 41, maybe 42, and went to him, and sure enough, I got the diagnosis. So that's been years ago, years ago. (laughs) Well, I'm curious. I mean, I feel like a universal experience for those of us who were uh, diagnosed well into adulthood is that feeling like your whole life flashes before your eyes, right? That feeling like... I can't believe how many random struggles I had all fall under this one little umbrella or big umbrella of ADHD. And it felt like for me, it was just this roller coaster of excitement that I had this answer. And then the grief that how did nobody know about this? Like it really felt like the signs were there all along, especially going back and looking at my report cards, um, you know, just seeing the signs of it everywhere and really feeling like the life I could have lived, right? You know, really feeling very, a lot of sadness and grief around the diagnosis. So I'm curious, not only what was your reaction, but also looking back over the course of your life, what were some of those things that really stood out to you where you were like, oh yeah, the signs, the signs were there all along. The signs were there, but I also, as a child, had significant anxiety issues. I had school phobia. I didn't want to go to school. And I don't know how much of that would be related to the undiagnosed, untreated ADHD. But what's different about my story, although I understand that most women, especially late diagnosed, do go through this um, 
phase. And I wouldn't say it's a phase because it can come back and forth. Even if you've been in therapy for your ADHD and you go through the grieving process and understanding this is the life I could have had and, and now here I am 30, 40, 50 and up, I didn't go through a grieving process. However, I did go through a long period of time where I was in denial because I couldn't, first of all, you know, it still was so misunderstood back then. I didn't know anybody who had ADHD. I had never heard of it in adults. So I was going through this denial. No, no, it's not that. It's not that it's because I had anxiety. I still have, you know, some anxiety issues. Or because I missed a lot of school as a kid, because I was so frightened to go, oh, it's because of that. You know, I just didn't catch on because I didn't, I missed so much schooling. So I went to at least, if I could remember, at least two other clinicians to get their opinion. Do I really have ADHD? So that was my big thing was denial. Once it was confirmed by two other clinicians, I took it and ran. I didn't go through the grieving. I didn't go through what I missed out. I understood what my current problems were what my past problems were, but as a clinician, I decided now that my, my life has changed in such a, for me, it was in a good way. Now I know why I can't cook dinner. Now I know why my house is cluttered. Now I know why I, I procrastinate with paperwork and all that sort of thing. I felt, felt that as a clinician, now I could step up and change my whole perspective of what I wanted to do as a clinician and help men and women. It started off with men and women with ADHD. So in a way, it empowered me. That's more of an unusual, I believe, from what I've you know, experienced working with women, especially with ADHD. Mine was, and maybe it's because I have the clinical background and wanted to use my skills in helping other women. That's been my focus. Isn't that a great word for me to use? That has been my focus <laughs> for the last 25 years because once I understood what it was, my life took off. I still have struggles. I did back then. I still do now, but I have a different lens. And now I can help other women who are going through grief, who are going through anger, who are going, well, why didn't my parents take me to a therapist? Why didn't, you know, why didn't they understand me? Why didn't I understand me? So mine, mine is just a little bit of a different story. Mm -hmm. I will say that as a child, you know, I was extremely disorganized. If you had opened up my closet, my childhood bedroom closet, the diagnosis would have been right there. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the why, you know, why that question is so important to me and why I always ask it is because it feels like, you know, this, there's so much of that pushback around the fact that this is a fad or, you know, so much of their doubt for us in adulthood of, Am I just making excuses? Am I really, you know, is this actually ADHD or is this something else? Like a lot of the that internal doubt and confusion, I think it's helpful for us to to look back and think like, no, this was this was a personality that I was born with, and you know, this is how it manifested over certain periods of my life where it ebbed and flowed. And I, you know, feels like a game of snakes and ladders a lot of the time in terms of like feeling really great and feeling like I've got these answers and I've got these tactics and these strategies and then falling back into old patterns or, you know, <laughs> losing a sense of consistency and falling back. So it's like, yeah, I feel like it is so important for us in terms of our journey and our, and our like 
understanding of how ADHD looks in our life um, in terms of this diagnosis and why I think so many of us don't think of this as a, as a pathological diagnosis, right? We, it's really an incredible, it's a huge why. It's like a window opening for us. And, and it really allows us to kind of move forward and say, oh, now I know, now I can figure out the right strategies for me. And, you know, one of the reasons why The Queen of Distraction is so, so popular and I think so wonderful of a book is it, it answers so many of those now what questions uh, in such a helpful way, which is really you know, goes beyond the philosophy of ADHD or just the like take meds, but really practical. Like I think of you, Terry, every time I move my hangers from one side to the other in my closet in terms of when was the last time I wore this, you know, like those really, really practical answers that can be so life-changing for so many of us who have struggled. Well, thank you for that. And uh, the whole idea with the book was to reach out to explain to women who feel broken and lost, that you don't need to feel that way, that especially with therapy, and I'm a big proponent of therapy and coaching and medication, if it's warranted, that there are answers, but we have to start from within ourselves. So I, you know, I played out this scenario of two friends, one is hyperactive, one is inattentive, and it, you know, it plays out very differently in the book and in real life. But we don't have to, you know, just keep berating ourselves and saying, I, I just don't know where to begin. And it doesn't solve. Books, therapy, coaching doesn't solve how our brain works. It works with our brain. And so we're going to have these ups and downs. So here I am now, you know, way into this whole thing, not just in a personal way, but in a, in a professional way. I still falter. You know, I still, I, my house is still cluttered. But I have gotten to the point where I don't identify as being ADHD. I have an ADHD brain. That's the difference, I think, is that I've gotten to the point in my old age that I don't, ident I don't identify that way anymore. I am a, a woman. I'm a mother. I'm a partner, a wife. I've got you know, all the kids. I'm an artist. I'm a clinician. I'm a musician, all that. Focusing on the things that we do well and using some of these things like you just described will help, but it doesn't eliminate the problem. And that's where we have to really put some work into acceptance self-acceptance and going with our ADHD instead of pushing it away and identifying as something's wrong with me, something's wrong with me. Everybody has something going on. And I hear a lot about uh, women who say, well, my, my husband or my partner or whoever, they don't get me. And I remind them, they have something too that they're dealing with. Everybody does. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think that's something I, we talk about a lot on this podcast in terms of the, you know, a lot of ADHD traits are looked at as character flaws, but especially for women, so much of this comes down to how we were socialized. And so what is, you know, why are we holding shame around some of these behaviors like clutter or not wanting to do chores, right? And and really questioning like, well, why would you want to do chores? They're chores. <laughs> like, of course, they're boring. That's the thing, you know, when you have ADHD, the one of the worst things that can happen is to be bored. So yeah. those are boring things, you know. Gosh, two questions. First of all, you had mentioned about not feeling often like ADHD defines you. And so, you know, one of the questions I have a lot of still a much more 
earlier in my diagnosis, but I still don't really have answers for it, which is like, what, when you talk about ADHD, do you think about a neurodivergent brain that we are born with? And that is the ADHD. And then there are times where it's, we really might struggle in certain environments like school or boring jobs or that kind of thing where, our, where our symptoms become worse or, and there's times where we might really, you know, really thrive with an ADHD brain in those moments. And, but the, it's the brain that we're talking about. Or when you talk about ADHD, do you feel like ADHD is, is the traits that are exhibited, um, in as negative so that if you're not struggling, your ADHD is like less or less severe? So I think what you're saying is it a medical model versus a trait. Is that what I'm hearing is the question? Yeah, or or almost an uh, yeah, like a, an identity. So there's two, you know, at least two schools of thought. There is you're born with an ADHD brain and it's a biochemical um, developmental whatever uh, way we were born and other clinicians and researchers and writers will say no, it's a trait. Others take it to the extent of saying it's a gift. I'm not in that category. I don't think it's a gift. I think it's a combination. I think that we're born with a predisposition for having ADHD. And I think for some people, it comes out quickly and in a big raging way. In other people, it might be, you know, we have just like anything else. You can have mild depression, severe depression, chronic depression. I think with ADHD, so we have the predisposition. It either comes out or it doesn't. Generally comes out in some way depending on how you're raised, if you're raised with parents who are very structured and help you and are very involved, then maybe your ADHD won't be so devastating. As a trait, I would see it more like that. If you've had the right kind of upbringing, the right kind of help, and maybe you have a milder form of ADHD that you were born with, and you've learned strategies, and your life is the type of life that uh, helps you with your ADHD. So some kinds of occupations, some kinds of uh, situations you have in your family uh, aren't very ADD friendly. So I think it can go either way. I look at myself as someone who was born with an ADHD brain. It's rampant in my family. I'm also very, very interested in the connection between trauma and ADHD. I think a lot of people with early trauma look like they have ADHD or they have both. ADHD and trauma. I'm very interested in the work of Dr. Dr. Gabor Mate. He's pretty controversial in the ADD world. He happens to be a friend of mine, and I've been following his work for many, 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 many years. And he has some interesting things to say about how does ADHD show itself. So I think I'm a, I've got one, one foot in each of these options that you're presenting. That's a very therapist answer. It depends, right? <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel about it? <laughs> Tell me your thoughts. <laughs> I love that Gabor Mate is willing to touch this subject. You know, I find it somehow very comforting and validating that the clinical world is so undecided <laughs> about ADHD because I feel like I am so endlessly confused by it. And so uh, I love the fact that anyone is willing to pull up their boots and wade into the muck because it's that curiosity, right? It's that it's the puzzle-solving nature in us to want to really figure out what this is. And I would worry about people who say, it's only this, or it's only this. So someone who says, it's only trauma, or it's only you're born with a, your genet it's a genetic thing, and you know if your parent had it, you have a 60% chance of having ADHD yourself. 
So, you know, I think that there's room, there's room to waddle and, and take in. And maybe the most important thing is, well, how does it work for you? Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, what, what works for you? And I think a lot of the treatment for ADHD is successful treatment for anyone, right? With executive dysfunction. So as long as it's helping and it's working, then, then that's where this diagnosis can be so helpful. This episode is brought to you by ADHD Online, the only online source I trust for clinically comprehensive evaluations and treatment for ADHD. With ADHD Online's one-of-a-kind assessment, you can start your assessment when you're ready, complete it on your schedule, and get your results from a licensed psychologist in three to five days. Not only will you learn whether or not you have ADHD, you'll also get information about your risk levels for anxiety and depression and other related conditions. ADHD Online believes that mental health care should be streamlined and accessible, so they offer their assessment at a fraction of the price you would pay for traditional evaluations and treatment. Get the help you need without breaking the bank or waiting months or even years for an in-person office visit. As a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can save $20 off your assessment. Simply head to ADHDonline.com slash podcast and use code WOMENADHD20 at checkout. Again, that's ADHDonline.com slash podcast and use code WOMENADHD20 to save $20 when you book your assessment. You can find that link in the episode show notes. At ADHD Online, your comprehensive care is just a click away. This episode is brought to you by Loop Earplugs. Loop Earplugs are my ultimate companion to a calmer and more focused life. If you're also an adult with ADHD, autism, or sensory issues, rest assured Loop Earplugs are designed with us in mind. Whether you're at your favorite coffee shop or in your office cubicle or simply at home with your kids, with their advanced noise reduction technology, Loop Earplugs gently lower the volume without blocking out the world completely. They're made from soft, hypoallergenic materials that are comfortable for extended wear. They fit snugly in your ears, ensuring you can wear them discreetly throughout the day. Plus, they come with a sleek carrying case, making them convenient to take with you wherever you go. Now that I'm in grad school, I love to use the Engage Plus loops whenever I'm walking around campus. They're specifically designed to reduce the level of sound entering my ear without completely blocking out all noise. My teenager loves her quiet loops for studying, and my son loves his Engage Kids loops for short intervals like riding the school bus or taking tests at school. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get 10% off your order when you visit loopearplugs.com slash womenADHD. That's loopearplugs.com slash womenADHD, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Your life, your volume. Having seen this rise, this this relatively huge influx of, of diagnoses in the last few years of adult women, especially, what do you make of it? Do you feel like it's a course correction or do you feel like it is a fad or do you feel like there's possibility for misdiagnoses? You know, there was that, I don't know if you saw that article recently in the psychiatric times, but it just feels like every couple months, there's some eye rolling article that comes out about how, oh, everybody thinks this is ADHD and it's not, but there's not a lot of answers as to what it could be instead. Um, So I'm curious, having seen the rise of TikTok and diagnoses, what, what are your thoughts on this? That's a great question, Katie. That's a really good question. So I think there's a lot of parts to it. First of all, we had COVID. COVID changed the lives of men and women, kids, everybody. And I think, um, so I don't know if you want me to focus more on women or adults. So 
I mean, there's been a, yeah, there's been a huge rise in both, I think, yeah. right? Just in adult diagnoses in general. Yeah. Right. So if, if you have this predisposition of having ADHD and you didn't know you had it and you weren't diagnosed and treated, but you know, you've had your own challenges. Now your whole life has changed. People with ADHD often don't do well with change. We don't transition too easily. Uh, when we learn about how to help our kids, we need to remind ourselves that it helps us as well. So you warn your child, hey, in about five minutes, we're going to have to stop playing the video game and get into homework time. We have to do the same thing with ourselves. With COVID and so many people working from home, losing that structure, losing that structure for a lot of people who don't have ADHD was difficult. But you throw in ADHD and you no longer have external forces keeping you on target. You know, your report is due at 1.15. We're going to have a meeting at 3, you know, all those things. So now we're left to our own devices. So I think COVID had a huge emphasis on, on getting people thrown off so badly that they did reach out for help and found out they have ADHD. So that's COVID. And the world is changing so quickly. You know, every, it seems like every couple of months, there's another horrible thing happening in the world. And again, people with ADHD, this is something that Gabor Monte talks about, and I totally agree with. He believes that people who have ADHD are born with a sensitive nature. And that's kind of what I see. We, we hear about Dr. Dodson and his rejection, I always get this wrong, rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria, and that's seen in people who are sensitive. That's what it is. It's being sensitive. So if you have a sensitive nature, and most of the people I know with ADHD, and I do myself, am particularly sensitive, these changes, whether they're large, like what's happening now in our world, or minor, or something in between, uh, it's going to hit us more deeply, more, dif more you know, strongly than someone who may be able to just, you know, brush it off a little bit easier. So then we have these reactions. We have these reactions that might be, you know, like more severe. And like, why is it that it's bothering me? And then things start to come together and we, we find out that we have ADHD. So the TikTok thing, I'll tell you something. I, I've heard, you know, I heard that there's a lot of misinformation about TikTok and I got curious because... If you have ADHD, you're curious. That's a given. So I jumped onto TikTok and I saw exactly what they were talking about. These, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. I have ADHD because um, I didn't put my shoes away. Whatever. So I opened up an account. And I have a TikTok account where I'm trying to dispel myths, misinformation. Because, like you said, so many people are now coming forward with, I think I have ADHD. Yes, I have ADHD. Well, just because your your shoes aren't put away or you're late making dinner a couple nights a week does not mean you have ADHD. You know, you have to go, as you know, through a very intensive workup with a, a, a knowledgeable clinician before you can be identified or diagnosed with having ADHD, not by a TikTok account. So there's that. And people have more time to be on TikTok. But I am worried. I'm worried about the influx of people being diagnosed and treated because I'm not sure. I am not sure. I think that there's a lot of answers. Another one is there's a lot. We have stats to show. I think Russ Barkley did it maybe. I don't know who. Of how many people are not identified. Way more are not identified than are identified. And I think what you're referring to, that study, if it's the same one I read, that now they think more adults with have ADHD, the percentage just went up to over 3% of the population. 
I personally think there's more. I think we're still at that level where people are not being identified and treated. And these kinds of external things that are happening can bring them out and uh, they're going you know, for help. But the, according to, I believe it is Russ Barkley, the, the great majority of people are not being identified. That's a big problem. One of the things my work has been is to try and educate clinicians. Like when you hear someone come in, especially a woman, I'm depressed. I can't get it together. Well, they get antidepressants. You probably heard this story many times from your guests. That was my life. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, you're depressed. Well, let's put you on antidepressants. Bye-bye. See you in uh, three months for your next med checkup. Person, come, woman especially, comes back. I'm still depressed, doctor. All right, well, let's up your dosage. Well, maybe add a second kind of antidepressant. Or maybe you have anxiety. Well, let's add that. Come back. I'm still depressed, doctor. So we, we've made some impact on clinicians to better understand it, but we're still so far away from teaching them what to look for. I believe everybody who walks into um, a clinician's office should be screened for ADHD. Now, it's just been passed recently in the U.S., I believe, that now they're being screened for depression. Well, if someone is depressed, you need to look for underlying ADHD. We're not there yet. Yeah. So I can't retire. <laughs> I can't retire. Well, one of the things, uh, yeah, William Dodson at the last uh, ADHD conference uh, last year had talked about depression and anxiety as pre-diagnoses, and he felt like almost all of the ADHD clients he had seen over the years who had, uh, or had a, how do I word this? I'm getting jumbled. Basically, I think he was saying, if you have been depressed, if you've been diagnosed with depression and anxiety, it's almost a guaranteed precursor for ADHD. Those combinations of depression and anxiety diagnosis, he says, you know, if that's been your experience, look into ADHD because there's such um, a correlation between those two. And and I often want, I often feel like I would add to that if your clients are asking questions like, what's wrong with me? That's a huge flag. Uh, that confusion, right? That confusion and the frustration and that inability to move forward that exists prior to an ADHD diagnosis, not just the despondency of depression, but the real like that frustration element that that I certainly always had with the, like you said, with the depression where I was like, well, if I'm this depressed on medication, how bad am I going to be off of it? Right. Or maybe we need to up the dose, but like always feeling like those, those diagnoses never fit. And here's what makes it more confusing for the clinician is that people who are significantly depressed can't do daily things. They have a hard time getting out of bed. They have a hard time taking care of kids, uh, taking care of work issues, you know, home thing, things at home. It can become very complicated. So the other piece to this would be what we talked about a minute ago. If you're not getting better on antidepressants, that's another huge red flag. And this is what I hear so many times. And this, what's wrong with me? I like, there's a book called, um, I forgot who wrote it, maybe you know, and it's titled something like, it's, well, he says in the book, it's not what's wrong with me, it's what happened to me. And that's where you get the, uh, what Gabor might talk about and some other people who are involved in trauma. That's another clue, you know, what happened to me? Yeah. And I don't hear that from people who are depressed so much as we can't do daily activities. We can't do things that other people seem to be able to do. That is a really good point. Like, what's wrong with me? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And and also just questioning. I mean, I think why trauma is such an important question to have with uh, around the ADHD is, you know, how do we even begin to determine how much trauma a life undiagnosed has given us, right? In terms of how we've been treated by teachers or how we would, you know, the negative comments of children and all of that. Like, how do we even begin to quantify how much trauma we may be experienced by having a neurodivergent brain and being undiagnosed? Exactly. I mean, we think uh, too many people think that trauma means you got shot or you were raped or um, some horrible, horrible, horrible things. But trauma can also mean you weren't heard. Growing up as as a child, your parents didn't understand you. Your needs weren't met because they didn't listen to you. They didn't understand you because you did have this difference in your in your brain, brain differences and abilities at the time. And that is a trauma. People don't think of those things as being trauma. But if you have a, a lack of attachment and bonding with a uh, your mother, friends, or you know a parent, that's traumatizing because now you don't have the tools you need to grow up and feel secure and capable. And you just, you know, you're thrown, this is especially if you have a predisposition, I'm, you know, I'm saying, this throws you over, over the cart that now you're really floundering and then your self-esteem goes down to zero. All these things are combined. Just think about it. If all of this is on your mind or even at an unconscious level, how are you going to have the energy and the ability to file your papers or look for your tax papers to get that done in time. Um, we're, we're just laden with all of these layers of difficulties and challenges which start early on, early on. I think that's a big, big problem we're not looking at enough is how were you raised? How, how did people understand you? What were your parents like when you didn't do well in school? Were they rallying for you? Did they help you? Did they set up strategies to help you with your work, your homework, and all that, were they talking to your teachers? Well, in my day, no, that didn't happen. In, in today's day, we're, we're more informed, but still now with you know what we were, we were talking about earlier with COVID, with change, with jobs, and moving, and it's hard to put that attention that's needed into your children's, not only their education, but their daily lives. It's hard on a parent, especially if that parent has ADHD. So think of all the layers we're talking about especially if you have a parent with ADHD. It's hard. Moms with ADD have my heart. I know. I've often said I want to go back to the version of me. I want to go back to me when I had babies and just give that version of me a hug, knowing what I know now, because I feel like so many women really struggle in that period of time. And I had no idea why, right? And so I often thought, what's wrong with me? I did too. So that part is very important uh, for moms listening to this is that give yourself a hug. You don't, you didn't know, or even if you did know, just if you take one little piece and that would be sleep deprivation. In those early months when I had kids, I was out of my mind because uh, a lot of women with ADHD need that rest because we work so hard all day long into the night to keep it together. Not only keeping our house together, but giving what our family needs, the children, our, our partner, we think of ourselves last. And that's a big problem. And so these moms with ADHD really, really struggle with terrible self-esteem. We lose it easily because we might be a little bit more emotional and we don't have the breaks 
on our emotions and our behaviors at times, but we slap each other. I'm not slapping, we slap ourselves for what you're describing. And I can just see it on your face that you had a rough go. I did too. And I hope the moms listening, can you give yourselves some slack? It is so hard when you have ADHD, and even if your children don't have ADHD, they're needy, they're loud. Oh my gosh, I had a terrible time with that. I'm an inattentive woman, woman with inattentive ADHD. My kids were the exact opposite. It was a terrible mismatch in terms of temperament. So I had to deal with a lot of shrieking and noise and music and dancing and jumping and tapping and rah, rah, rah. That just about did me in. Yeah, you know, I loved that part in The Queen of Distraction. I really appreciated when you talked about the importance of taking time for yourself. Because I, I remember, especially when my kids were little, they're teenagers now, and so they, uh, I often don't see them sometimes all day. But I remember like when Mother's Day would come around, and every year all I wanted for Mother's Day was for everybody to leave me alone, right? And, that, and I just always used to be like, what a terrible mother that that's all I want for Mother's Day is to is for everybody to get the hell out of the house. And I used to feel bad about it. So I really appreciated the fact that you addressed how important it is for that quiet and that time to recharge in, and reframing it in terms of like how that makes us a better parent. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it felt very validating to have that permission. <laughs> I think that we need to learn to express what our needs are. You know, we were raised, you mentioned it in the beginning of this podcast, that we take on society's expectations. When we're talking about women and girls, from the time we're young girls, we're taught, even in, in very not verbal ways, we take care of others. We, you know, we do, it's in the book, we do a million things to keep everyone together. We make the doctor's appointments, check with the teachers, make sure their clothes are clean. Uh, it's gotten better where men do more things than they did, you know, years ago, but we're not there yet. So we do so much for the family and for other people in general that we let our own needs go unspoken. And then what happens is just what you described, you know, I just need, I need downtime. I'm the same way, especially if you're an inattentive mom and you've got young children who tend to be boisterous and loud and a lot of commotion. It just took everything out of me. And I have the same exact feelings that you're describing. What kind of mother? I remember one of my daughters on Mother's Day <laughs> wanted to give me breakfast in bed. Now, I'm not a morning person, as many women with ADHD are like that. We're night owls. I come alive at 9 p.m. So at 7.30 in the morning, my daughter comes in with a tray of something that she made was adorable, but, you know, it's not what I needed. It's not what I needed. It's what she needed. It's what she needed to do. So though I was very gracious, and I have no appetite when I wake up, you know, I put the tray aside and I thanked her and all blah, blah, blah. But yeah, we need to explain our needs instead of always being in the background, giving, giving, giving. They come first. They come first. Well, yeah, as as Parents, we do need to take care of our children, but we have needs as well. Mm -hmm. Well said. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. I want to get back a 
bit to the topic of grief because I know this has been a really this is a really difficult time right now and we've had it like you said it feels like since 2020 we've just been bombarded in a way in an unprecedented way by it just feels like every every time you turn around there's some other catastrophic news event that is really difficult for us to process and I have a lot of thoughts about hypersensitivity and emotional sensitivity and current events and the news, right? You know, and I I feel like I'm turning this into a free therapy session. So stop me if you're like, I don't want to do that. But one of my coping strategies has been to just get off of social media. I feel like social media is a really dangerous place for shouting into the void. It's not nuanced. I prefer having one-on-one intentional conversations. I it, I find it affects my mental health tremendously to be in the conversation, right? Taking, like being in the arena, so to speak, of these really, really complicated issues. And so I have often just retreated. And I saw a TikTok recently that I can't stop thinking about, which was, when you retreat from social media, when you retreat from the conversation, that is akin, to, that's basically white supremacy. Uh, you know, you have the privilege to retreat. And so I'm really holding both of these realities because I do see that. I do see that there is a privilege there in terms of retreating from social media, but I also feel like I can't, like I cannot engage. And I feel like there are a lot of neurodivergents out there who really struggle with the weightiness of grief in these topics and how best to process this grief, how best to engage in meaningful ways. I'm, I'm curious how you've been dealing with this and, and how ADHD comes into play with all of this. Well, in terms of the ADHD, so I, I hear what you're saying, and I am completely blown into the current Middle East conflicts. And, you know, with an ADHD brain, we are sensory seeking. Our brain is not always our body, because we also can be overwhelmed quite easily, but our brains are looking for stimuli. And it becomes a conflict right there. You know, my brain is saying, I, I need to know, I need to know, I need to know. My body is saying, this is exhausting me. I'm getting upset. I'm getting overreactive. I'm, you know, all these things are, are bothering. So it's a, it's a push-pull for me. The, 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 the thing that you said about white supremacy is very interesting. I hadn't thought of it like that, that we have options. We have options in a lot of ways mentally. We can decide just turn off social media, just walk away. Like say, I don't, it's, it's nowhere near me. What do I care? It's a lot of people who just don't care because it's not in our backyard. But my brain is saying, what's going on here? And part of that for me, I don't know about you, is anxiety. This hypersensitivity that people with ADHD have. What's going to happen now? What's I need to know. How will I know? Well, I got to turn on the news. Or I got to turn on social media. So you're doing the right thing. Listen, we need to listen to ourselves, our brains and our bodies. So if our brains are seeking out stimuli because we can't be bored, maybe think about what can I, where can I put this energy where can I put this energy where I'm still involved maybe in understanding what's going on in the world, whether it's climate uh, issues, which is a big thing too, or earthquakes, you know, far, far away from where we are. There's a lot, lot going on. Where can I put that energy where it's not going to make me upset, depressed, anxious, overstimulated? Where can I shift that out? If turning off social media or not going on social media is what works for you, do that. And maybe take little tiny sound bites if you really want to stay on top of things. You know, instead of watching things on TV, 
read the new- newspaper. If you don't want to get tangled up in these arguments that you see on social media, which are very disturbing to me, do what you're doing. Get off of it. But I do think that a lot of it, again, has to do with our sensitivity issues, that we take it in so deeply that it affects us. And we, I think just recognizing that might be the first step in knowing what to do about it. No, I'm hypersensitive. This really, I, it gives me a reaction that's not healthy for me but I still want to stay involved. You could ask somebody who is really involved. Just give me a, you know, a two-liner. Where are we with this thing that happened and this thing that happened? And then you have enough. Just get enough of what you need and then take the focus into something that's healthier for you without the guilt. Yeah, oh gosh. The without the guilt part, I was like, I don't know if that's going to happen. But, <laughs> but I like the way you phrase where you said, where can I put my energy, right? So it's acknowledging that the energy is still there and it needs a place to go, right? Energy needs a place to go. But where where is the most helpful place for me to put my energy right now? Isn't retreating. It's being prudent. It's being it's being thoughtful and, and not shouting into the void. Well, there's other things. Um, so if you have an idea of where you stand on a physical, let's talk about climate control right now. You have very strong feelings about making this a better world for us and our children, grandchildren, and on and on generation. Well, you could do you know, volunteer work. You can donate money to the cause, whatever it is, without jumping into, you know, I'm putting on my gloves and I'm going to you know, clean up the streets every Friday at three, whatever. What works for you? What works for your brain? And again, it comes into self-understanding, and, and that can come from therapy again, or being with people who understand you and you have you know similar ideas about things. How are they? How are? Ask your friends. How are you managing during these crises? What do you do? But yeah, I think we need to shift the focus if it's too painful, too damaging to ourselves, and if that happens, then you know it creates a ripple. It affects our families. Um, and finding another positive way to deal with that, to work with it, that may, as you said, you know, may do something to help the, the issue without jumping in and being disturbed by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I Talking about hypersensitivity in general, or just sensitivity is a fascinating topic to me too. So I want to pick your brain about this because I know you talk a lot about sensitivity in your book. And I had posted uh, a couple of years ago, I posted some videos that were like surprising things about ADHD that I didn't know about. And I talked a lot about sensitivity to fabric, sensitivity to overhead lighting. Uh, I talked about, you know, uh, preference for one mug above all others, <laughs> you know, or how important the size of my spoon is. And oftentimes I would get that comment back, which is, well, no, 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 you're talking about autism. That's not ADHD. And so I found that interesting because I was like, well, there's, you know, there's often, there's a lot of overlap in terms of ADHD and autism when it comes to sensory stuff. But now I'm like, well, are we talking about autism when it comes to the sensory stuff? Because now there's, you know, this dual diagnosis of ADHD. And I'm like, now I don't know where one ends and the other begins. How do I, how do I define what is ADHD and what is autism and what is both? Why is it so important for me (laughs) to define this is another question that I don't know. But I'm curious, you know, how are you able to kind of distinguish between the two? And when it comes to sensory and sensitivity? 
Well, first of all, I'm not an expert on autism, so I have to be careful because a lot of people watching this are experts or they have both. I don't. I have just the ADHD. But there is an overlap with hypersensitivities. I do know that. And it can be confusing, but I think that if you're really evaluating this or you're just questioning, do I have both? There are differences. I don't want to get into them only because I don't know enough about autism and I don't know enough about differential diagnoses. But I kind of have a sense when people talk to me about certain problems that they're having and they're wondering, could it be more than ADHD? And I kind of listen and, and then suggest that they get evaluated by someone who does know the subtle differences. But with people with ADHD, I can get into the hypersensitivities, which are very common, but most people are unaware of them. And that's why I wrote that chapter. And I do a lot of talking about hypersensitivities because it's so painful to live in this world. And some of the things you described are exactly how I feel. Like when there's when I'm home and I don't have to be around people, I wear clothes the size too big. I don't like feeling restricted, constricted. I hate it. Now, here's something interesting, I think. For years, I've been trying to find an OT, an occupational therapist, who evaluates adults with sensory issues. Sensory processing disorder is an actual thing. It's an actual diagnosis, and I think I have it, but I could not in all these years. Couldn't find someone until about six months ago. And she happens to be local to me. I'm in the Detroit area. If anyone's curious, you know, contact me. I'll give you her name. And I went through an evaluation. She said, oh, my God. Yeah, everything bothers me. It's not just one thing. For some people, it's just a couple of things that bother them, like um, bright lights or textures of food, textures of clothing, certain kinds of sounds. Well, I have almost across the board something in every category. I think there's five categories, some that we already know, like visual, auditory, taste, and uh, texture. I can't remember the exact words. I have in every single category. So she gave, and, and it was almost, almost like the ADHD diagnosis. It wasn't, oh, gee, I wish my mother knew when I was eight years old why I wouldn't wear a certain kind of outfit, or I wouldn't wear pants with a funny waistband that little girls wore back then, or I wouldn't wear wool, la la. I didn't go there. I didn't go there. It's like, okay, it's confirmed. What I thought was going on with me all these years finally been confirmed. I think I also have auditory processing disorder. Because it's, and this is very common in ADHD, any little sound in the room when we're talking one-on-one, -on -one, I can't focus. My, my attention is completely gone. And it's as if I have lost my hearing because I have to keep saying, huh, huh, what did you say? I'm sorry, what did you say? So I'm still looking for solutions for how to manage that. I hate talking on the phone. And you ask a lot of people with ADHD, do you like talking on the phone? And I would say the majority hate hates talking on the phone. And I think part of it is, first of all, it's all auditory. And we need more, at least people I work with, and I said, we need more of our senses to take in information. On the other hand, if we take in too much information, we get overwhelmed. So do you see? It's like a no-win. And that's why it's so important to learn more about ourselves. Now, you're talking about your hypersensitivities, and I'm so glad to hear that. Because most people, when I talk about it, say, huh? You mean I'm just, it's not that I'm just weird? And then you feel like there's a heaviness because you ask, or you're afraid to ask people, you know, can you please turn off the TV while I'm reading? So a lot of people can automatically filter out that kind of stuff. I cannot. And it's frustrating. 
and it makes me anxious, and it makes me angry and irritable. So, oh, I could go on and on on that topic. I know, right? I, I reminded of how many times I sat down to take an exam in university in a, like a giant gymnasium, and I could hear the clock ticking on the wall. And I just knew I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to do well. Like it's it it just completely took over. And it's fascinating because I've talked to some guests who where it's we talk about this idea of like, occupying a section of your brain with say white noise or music or something it's like you need to introduce a stimulation for one part of your brain so that the other part of your brain can work better right so it's like if i read i need ocean sounds because otherwise i'll just read the same page over and over and over again and i'm like there's something about that right where it's like it's like there's this distractible part of your brain that needs to be occupied so that the focus part of your brain can work properly now that's a first for me that's interesting because i have the opposite problem any little kind of sound even if it's white noise or ocean it's noise sounds that i really like i can't i can't take both in I cannot take both in. So I have to have complete silence, which was hard in college because my brother, my younger brother was a musician. He was you know, younger, but he was playing the drums. He had a band and they were in the basement. I had to go outside in the backyard to study and do my homework. I mean, even if he had played gentle little piano music, I wouldn't be able to focus. Of course, back then I didn't know about ADD, no. So unlike you, but that's really, really interesting. It makes sense because I know some people, I don't know if they have ADHD or not, they have to have the TV on while they're working. They have to have that background noise. I can't do that, but they do. It's funny because I definitely could not have a TV on because that would distract me. But I study in a coffee shop. You know, I go to Starbucks to study now. Uh, And so, you know, it's like and I did that first time around in university. I had to I always did all of my best studying in a coffee shop. And so I'm like, so I have to have some kind of background noise. Uh, That is so interesting. I have not heard that. I have not heard that. But getting back to the sensory thing and autism, um, just because we might have a lot of sensory sensitivities does not automatically mean you have autism. But if you have other issues and I don't want to get into them because I don't want to give the wrong information out, go to a, a, you know, a mental health professional and get evaluated. Just make sure, and this is what I say to people who um, are going for an ADD evaluation, make sure they are experts in the field, not a generalist. Because, wow, uh, so many people have gone to just a regular, you know, clinician. Do I have ADHD? Well, you did so well in school. You got a college degree. How can you have ADHD? And then, you know, boom, you're depressed. (laughs) I'm laughing, but it's not a laughable thing. (laughs) That's another one I think we tend to do. It's like a coping mechanism. I feel like every time I talk about my trauma, I laugh along with it. (laughs) Well, that's a good thing interesting topic right there too you know it could be discomfort it could be a way to push push it away you know some denial and embarrassment a lot of reasons for that but it's pretty common you know you're not alone hey friend if there's one thing i've learned about adhd over the last few years is that we cannot thrive with the right combination of accountability planning 
coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyper-focus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, It's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. So now you had released a blog post recently about your your pet peeves around ADHD, which I found very entertaining and shared all of them. Um, one of the ones that I more agnostic about uh, was the was the person first versus identity first uh language around ADHD. Now you had mentioned it's your pet peeve when people use identity first, when people refer to themselves as an ADHDer. And so I'm curious um what bothers you about about the identity first? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm laughing. <laughs> It was controversial, right? I, I was going to say you got a lot of you got a lot of feedback on that one. <laughs> I got a lot of feedback, and and I understand where they're coming from. I think part of it is generational, that the younger generation identifies as an ADHD or a queer or whatever it is and whatever arena that they're in. For me, it's to me it sounds like you belong to an exclusive club. I'm an ADHD, so people with depression. Don't walk around saying, I'm a depressioner. I put this in the, in the article. People with anxiety don't say, well, I'm an anxieter. Um, I think I even said with OCD. I don't know that I've heard people say, well, I'm an OCDer. Or someone with Tourette's syndrome, do they say I'm a ticker? So it just doesn't feel right to me. I'm a person who happens to have an ADHD brain. I don't identify as an ADD or, or an ADHD or that is secondary or you know even third, whatever. I'm a woman, I'm a mother, I'm a daughter, and all those things. I'm not an ADHDer. Why that bothers me, I'm not sure, except from what I'm just explaining. That's, that's, not, that's not when I walk into a, 
a, a party or a group of people, I don't say, hi, my name is Terry. I'm an ADHDer. It just doesn't sit right with me. I'm Terry. You know, I'm this and I do that and that, that. And if it comes up about, well, you know, I have depression, I have anxiety, I have ADHD. Mm-hmm. I don't think that quite answers your question. <laughs> There's something bothering you. Well, no, I mean, it's, I am curious. I think I, I can see both sides, absolutely. And I think that, you know, I'm, it's curious to me because I think there is a way in which so much of this diagnosis in adulthood is about reframing, right? And I am the last person who will call ADHD a superpower. But I think there are ways in which the, a lot of the our treatment plan, so to speak, is is self-acceptance and reframing what ADHD looks like and that this is an, that there is a lot of positives to this. So I understand why people want to embrace the identity of ADHD and not look at it as a disorder or a disability, but at the same time there is a lot of struggle. It's not an inherently positive element to my personality. And so do I want to be thought of only as a person with ADHD? Uh, no, of course not. There's so many more aspects to my life. I just don't, it just doesn't bother me, I guess, <laughs> for somebody to, to use it because it's easier, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I love to think about it. That's a good thing. It, it could be a generational thing. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe this is how people talk more about having ADHD than they did, you know, 25, 30 years ago when I was, whatever. I don't know. I don't know why it, it, it bothers me, except that it feels like we're an exclusive club. And it's almost like, well, you know, this is a problem and I'm going to own up to it, but take it maybe a little too much. I don't know if I can even explain it right. Because there were a few people that, that did agree in, in social media and they explained it way better than I could. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there is a, you know, I think there are a lot of ways in which person first is, is an important way, you know, like you said, uh, or even like, you know, you wouldn't call a person with cancer, a cancerous person. <laughs> so there are ways in which it's not our entire identity. But at the same time, I'm like, well, is separating yourself from the ADHD, which essentially you're doing with person first language, is that somehow indicating that there's a way that you might be able to cure it or that there's a version of you without it? And and something about identity first, especially in the autistic community, is that there's no way of separating myself from the ADHD. So uh, there's no version of me that exists without it. And so therefore it's identity first. But I don't know. Like I said, I, I, I see both sides and I always love thinking about it. Well, something for me to think more about. I know that the Asperger's community, we don't even use the term Asperger's anymore. Unfortunately, I have a real issue with that, if you want to talk about. That's so unfortunate that uh, there's one term for all of autism. I, I don't go for that. But, you know, a lot of people identify as I'm an Aspie. Now, I don't have Asperger's. I don't have um, autism. But it's the same kind of thing in I need to, you know, you've given me some food for thought. And if people respond to what we're talking about, I'm, you know, I like to learn from other people. I don't want to offend people, but it'll help me be a better person to understand, well, you know, what is it about saying I'm an ADDer that makes you feel better about it? I'd like to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. 
which leads me to my favorite question I love to ask at the end of my interviews is, is if you could come up with a name, do you have an issue with the name ADHD? And if you could rename it to something else, what, what would you call it? I do have an issue because it's not a deficit of attention at all. It's where we put our attention. It's having control. I haven't thought up of a term that really is right for me, but it has to do with being able to have power over control. But I did um, have to look at my notes because I came up with a couple because I would never be able to memorize it. But I had some you know, light-hearted terms like more than able, less label. That's not really a, you know, a clinical term, but I'm just being lighthearted. Where are my keys condition? Um, can't turn off your brain trait. But then I came up with something that did seem possible, and that was executive function variable intention condition. That's a mouthful. That's not going to work. But I think the basis of our problems is executive function. And I'm sure that from all of your podcasts, it's been explained what executive function is. I don't want to take up space with that, but it's variable and we don't always have control. And I think that's a big thing. And all the stuff about self-regulation is a big part of it too. Self-regulation and variability of being able to control our attention. But then there's so much more to it as we've been talking about. There's the sensory stuff. There's self-esteem stuff. It's the what's wrong with me stuff. There's so much to this. I don't know how you would just get four words, but no, I don't like ADHD um, as a diagnostic label. I hate it. Attention deficit? You know, we can be, I can be on, on, on the computer for five hours straight. Where's my attention? It's just in the wrong place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and same with hyperactivity was one of those things that I recognize it in many ways now in terms of my internalized hyperactivity activity and my internalized thinking, but it was not, a, certainly not anything that I related to. And in fact, I would say it put me off looking into ADHD because I'd never thought of myself as a hyperactive person. Uh, and one of the things I like Dodson refers to, he's, he prefers hyper arousal instead of hyperactivity. And that's one of the ones I really like, uh, because I definitely could relate to hyper arousal. I agree with that one. But yeah, I mean, I had never heard of the term executive functioning until I was diagnosed and started looking into it. And that's where I'm like, why don't they teach that in school? Why are they teaching Hobeck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get rid of that. Oh, God, I flunked sewing class big time. But we weren't talking about executive functioning in the beginning. There wasn't much talk about it. So it's, it's not that it's new that we're focusing on it, but it's newer. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about hyperactivity and, and inattention and, and that sort of thing. And I'm so glad to see that it's now being talked to EF, you know, executive functioning. And that's really, you know, it's all about getting from A to B and from B to C. And in that A to B, B to C are all these different parts of planning the, you know, all those things fall under. I mean, ADHD falls under that in a big, big way. And I'm just, I'm glad that we're talking about it in that way now. But I like what Dotson says. I didn't read that one. I didn't see that, but I like that. Right. Yeah. That's, that's how I kind of like to think about it now. Although I, I really like the what's wrong, what's wrong with me syndrome. <laughs> Nothing's wrong with you. Right. That's what Sari Solder would say. Nothing's wrong with you. Oh yeah. She says, whatever, what the only thing that needs fixing is furniture and your pet your dogs, dogs and, and your furniture. I thought, Oh my God, that's brilliant. We're not broken. You know, one of the things that I laughed about, uh, I used that quote for her episode and I had all, I didn't realize that fixing your animal is a uniquely North American 
phrase. So all of these UK women in the UK and Australia were coming at me about dogs. And they were like, my dog is wonderful. My dog does not need to be changed. I was like, no, it's actually, it just means you're, you know, you're snipping them. But yeah. It's hilarious. So what term do they use? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know what they use for, uh, for neutering, but yeah. Anyway, well, Terry, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. A really, really a treat to get to pick your brain. And thank you so much for all that you put into this world and your incredible books and the incredible education for, for all of us. Thank you, Katie. You had great questions and it was a lot of fun. So thanks. And hopefully I can come back again sometime. Oh, I'd love that. Awesome. There you have it. Thank you for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. If you'd like to find out more about me and my coaching programs, head over to womenandadhd.com. If you're a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD and you'd like to apply to be a guest on this podcast, visit womenandadhd.com slash podcast guest, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Also, you know we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I totally get it, please just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may be struggling and they don't even know why. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered she's not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD. And she's now on the path to understanding her neurodivergent mind and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then. Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year. That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time boxing, single tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.